Hey, uh, we embark on a brand new series of messages beginning today in the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you have a Bible or a Bible on your device, you can go to Ecclesiastes. If you don't know where it is, ask somebody on your row and they'll help you, hopefully. Let me say a prayer for us before we dive in today. So, Almighty God, I just pray now that uh, you would grant us understanding and your perspective on the truth that we're going to see in your word today. And I ask this through your Holy Spirit. Amen. Marcus Person is a very wealthy man. I don't know if that name is familiar to you or not, but he's the 38-year-old inventor of a wildly popular computer game called Minecraft, which most of you have heard of and probably played. In late 2014, it was reported that Marcus Person sold Minecraft and his gaming company to another little company called Microsoft for a cool $2.5 billion. So now he was swimming in cash. So what did he do? Well, first thing is he went out and purchased a $70 million Beverly Hills mansion. And then he started to spend his days living the dream, right? throwing lavish parties for all of his friends, going on exotic vacations, traveling around the world, hobnobbing with lots of famous people, lots of celebrities. At the peak of his success, when most people would have assumed that he would be one of the most happy, fulfilled people in all the world, he sent out a couple of tweets in an honest moment late one night and told a little bit different story. He tweeted this, hanging out with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, and I have never felt more isolated, alone. Then he tweeted, the problem with getting everything is that you run out of reasons to keep trying. Marcus Person was discovering a reality, a disconcerting reality that other people too have realized, and Namely this, that achieving the pinnacle of success is not always all that it was cracked up to be. For him, it was a bit of a letdown. There he was, surrounded by all the trappings of his newfound success, and he was surprised to find himself inexplicably bored, empty, and alone. Well, I would say this, Mr. Marcus could have saved himself a lot of disillusionment if he had just made time to read the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, and especially if he'd taken its message to heart. Doing that would, I believe, benefit a lot of us as well. Because the truth is that the culture we live in promotes a vision of the successful life that looks so enchanting to many, many people that they become enamored with it and they think that would be the ultimate experience, right? If I could only have that kind of life, Hang around those kinds of people. Have it all. Do it all. Well, that would just be a heavenly life. Many people think that way and they aim their lives at achieving that dream. There was once a man who was on that same quest. The quest to find ultimate happiness and satisfaction in life. He set out to discover within the vast array of possible human experiences which of them might satisfy that inner 
longing that he had, that gnawing ache that was always there just beneath the surface, that yearning of his soul to be happy, to be content, to be fulfilled. Interesting thing was, just like Marcus Person, really even to a greater extent, this man was able to completely indulge his every whim because he had literally no constraints on him, no boundaries. Fortunately for us, a journal was kept of this man's pursuits, his experiences, his observations, and of his findings and his conclusions as well. In this journal, this man is called The Preacher, and the journal itself is called The Book of Ecclesiastes. Today we begin an expedition, I guess you could call it, an adventure. We're going to take our time walking through this journal together and in a sense be the preacher's companions as he explores one one avenue after another in search of the truly good life. We're going to enter each experience with him, we're going to hear his musings, we're going to be privy to his assessments and his evaluations. In so doing, we're going to be challenged in our own hearts to consider what it is that makes this life really worth living. So you ready for that? Here we go. The journal, the book of Ecclesiastes, opens on a very famous note that's admittedly kind of pessimistic. (laughs) It opens like this. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold... All is vanity and a striving after wind. Now that's not a very uplifting, encouraging way to open up a a journal. Some people want to chalk this up to this guy having an acute case of depression. They say, here we have a man who's obviously been through some tough stuff and he's let it affect his outlook. He's soured on life and he's sinking into despair. Do you know what? As we walk with the preacher on this journey, we're going to find that his conclusion here is not the emotional response of someone who suffered hard times. No, no. It's the calculated assessment of someone who actually made it to the top, who experienced the full range of what most people would give their left arm to experience, right? All kinds of thrills, the heights of human achievement, Exhilarating challenges, the pinnacles of pleasure, having seen it all and done it all. This man's level-headed conclusion was that it's all vanity. It's all striving after the wind. Like Marcus Person, the preacher found that living the dream wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. Despite everything that it promised, it left him hollow and empty and disappointed. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So today is just an overview of Ecclesiastes, all right? A flyover of sorts. We're going to get into the details of the preacher's great experiment starting next week. But for today, let's begin by taking note of some of the important features of this very intriguing and interesting Old Testament book. So if you haven't taken out your study guide yet, you'll want to do that. There's a lot on there, and 
I want you to track with me today, okay? So first, let's pull back the curtain and ask the obvious question, who is this? Who exactly is the preacher here? And most scholars believe that the author was none other than King Solomon, and I would agree with that. King Solomon. Now, he's not named in Ecclesiastes, but he refers to himself as the son of David, the king in Jerusalem, the king over Israel. Sounds like that could be Solomon, right? We're going to see that the author possessed more wisdom than any previous ruler in Jerusalem. And in chapter 2, it tells us that he had amassed more silver and more gold and more possessions than any of his predecessors. He also had a large harem. He summed up his self-description like this. He said, I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. No one who reigned in Israel during the Old Testament era fits this portrait, this description, better than King Solomon, the son of David. Now, it is likely that there was also another person involved here who served as an editor of sorts, someone who collected all of Solomon's journal entries and put them together for us. We get that from sections where the preacher is referred to not in first person, but third person, like in chapter 12, verse 9, where it says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So, so there's another person involved here. This, this guy likely pulled all this material together into the form that we have it here in our Bibles, there's no reason to believe that it got tampered with or changed in any way. I believe we have Solomon's actual words and thoughts recorded for us here. And if you know your Old Testament history, you might recall that Solomon, during his reign as king of Israel, presided over 40 years of peace and prosperity in the land. And so with no wars to fight, <laughs> he had the time, he had the resources, he had the freedom, and he certainly had the inclination to pursue Whatever his heart desired. Plus, he was king, right? So he had the authority to order up anything he wanted. Few people on record have gone as far, tried as hard, expended as much time, energy, and money, and pursued as many different avenues for finding happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment as did this man, King Solomon. He wrote this around 925 B.C., I think that's a blank on your outline there, yes? So you can fill that in. You say, well, what's the theme? What, 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 what's, what's Ecclesiastes all about? Put it in a sentence for me, okay. Here's the theme of Ecclesiastes as I understand it. Apart from acknowledging the reality of God, human existence will ultimately prove to be futile and pointless. Or vanity of vanities, as he put it. In short, apart from God, life is meaningless. Commentator Michael Eaton wrote it this way, Confine your viewpoint to just this world and its resources, and all of the contentions of pessimism are true. The world is utterly pointless. Now that perspective, that viewpoint, that worldview has been called secularism or secular Humanism. How many of you heard that term before? Secular humanism. Okay. Secular humanism refers to a worldview where life is viewed only on the horizontal plane. Our existence is seen only from a human 
perspective. And instead of starting with God at the center of the universe and God at the center of things, secular humanism starts with us, with, with man, and builds out its framework and philosophy from there. I call it a minus God perspective. Now, this, this kind of begs the question, doesn't it? Maybe you're thinking, well, was Solomon a secular humanist? I thought Solomon was a God-fearing man who, who knew the Lord. I mean, he wrote Proverbs, didn't he? Wasn't this the wisest man who ever lived? It's a good question. So most scholars think, and I agree, that Solomon, during this season of his life, maybe a midlife crisis, was knowingly and deliberately placing himself in the shoes of a secular humanist and conducting an experiment. Testing the waters, so to speak, of the humanistic worldview. It's as if he was saying, I'm going I'm to keep my wits about me. I'm going to hold on to my wisdom. But I'm going to dive deep into this philosophy of life and see if it really delivers all that it seems to promise. So he was conducting a test, all the while holding on to his theistic worldview, which was kind of like an open window running in the background of his life during this season. Does that make sense? So knowing that, we could expand on this theme a bit. We could say that the overarching theme of Ecclesiastes is to show that the humanistic worldview will ultimately lead to despair. But the theistic worldview that acknowledges God offers human beings the real possibility of a life of joy and hope. So the purpose of Ecclesiastes then is to promote a theistic worldview, a robust theistic worldview in which God is acknowledged and God is revered and trusted and enjoyed. Now the way he goes about this is by challenging secularized people to consider the logical outcome of their worldview, their minus God worldview. And he, in essence, is saying to them, look, it's not going to bring you ultimate happiness. It's not going to be satisfying. Take it from me. I've lived it. This is what he's saying. He's trying to undermine that whole humanistic philosophy and in so doing, drive people to God. So really, he's an, he's an undercover apologist for theism, for the theistic worldview in which people are conscious every day of living their lives under the watchful eye of a creator God, a just and gracious creator, who is involved in our lives in the here and now and ultimately will right all wrongs in a final judgment. So he's promoting that worldview, but he's kind of coming through the side door to get there. So the question the preacher is really posing in Ecclesiastes is this. Hey, Mr. Secular Humanist, Mrs. Secular Humanist, are you willing to admit that the inevitable result of your worldview, your secular worldview, is despair, vanity, emptiness, pointlessness? That that is the logical conclusion of life lived purely on a horizontal plane Minus God, can you really be content living that way? Living a pointless existence. And, to anyone who might be inclined to consider something else, he poses an alternative, a God-centered worldview, which he will contend offers a more coherent view of reality and gives 
life real meaning and purpose. So let's pause here and just uh, want to kind of do a, a survey of some of the common uh, words and phrases and sentences and terms that we find as we go through Ecclesiastes. And the first one is vanity, right? We're going to see that word vanity a lot. Vanity, vanity, it opens that way. And the Hebrew word means breath or wind or vapor. So something that's here for a moment and then gone. And this term is used as a metaphor in Ecclesiastes to mean empty, hollow, pointless, futile, meaningless. Chapter 1, verse 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. Which, by the way, is the second common phrase that we come across a whole lot in Ecclesiastes. Striving after wind, or another translation says chasing after the wind, and it conjures up this image of some kid trying to catch the wind, you know, and it's, it's futile, right? And it, this, too, is a metaphor for effort that's ultimately going to prove to be futile. You can't grasp the wind as much as you might try to do so. Chapter 2, verse 11, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Chapter 4, verse 4, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. It's futile. And then there's this very important term in Ecclesiastes, under the sun, under the sun. We see it again and again, under the sun, life under the sun. And, and this refers to the earthbound perspective. Life viewed on that purely horizontal plane, apart from acknowledging God. This is life under the sun. Chapter 2, verse 17. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Chapter 3, verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. So this life under the sun is marred with injustice. And in the places you expect to find good, he says, I found evil. Disillusioning, disconcerting, disheartening. Chapter 4, verse 1, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. So again, in Solomon's conception, life under the sun, life lived on a purely horizontal plane, is filled with Injustice and heartache and oppression and unfairness. And he can't make sense of it in the worldview that he has or that he has embraced. Then there's this word toil, and it, it appears over and over again in Ecclesiastes. This, of course, refers to mankind's labor and, and wearisome efforts to be satisfied, to fill that empty void in his heart. Chapter 1, verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Does your life ever feel like that? <laughs> that you're just toiling away day in and day out? What's the point of it? Chapter 2, verse 11, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil 
I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So all the phrases and terms are used in that one verse there. Chapter 2, verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. You work hard your whole life, and then someone else gets your fortune, and Solomon says, what's the point of that? Maybe you've had thoughts like that. Let's turn the corner a little bit here to some more optimistic phrases. Uh, one phrase we see a lot in Ecclesiastes is this, this phrase, God has given. God has given. And this, of course, acknowledges the generosity of God. Remember, Solomon is a theist. He believes in God. He's just kind of keeping that truth in the background. But every so often it kind of pops up. <laughs> Chapter 2, verse 26, For to the one who pleases him, God has given. There it is. God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. You know where joy comes from? It comes from God. That's what he's saying. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. In his mindset he was in at the time, this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Chapter 5, verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. Life is a gift from God, according to Solomon. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this too is the gift of God. So where does um, the, the ability to earn wealth and acquire possessions come from? According to this man, it comes from God. Chapter 8, verse 15, And I commend joy. By the way, I commend joy. It's a good thing. Joy in God. I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun, but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So the preacher views these, these realities of life as coming from the hand of God. And then there's this phrase, fear God. Fear God. And of course, that's a call to have reverence, right? For one who is greater than us. Fear God. Chapter 3, verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. That's encouraging. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. Honor Him. Revere Him. Hold Him in high regard. Chapter 8, verse 12, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. And Solomon's going to commend to us the life of honoring and revering and fearing God. And then as he wraps up this book and lays out his conclusion in chapter 12 and verse 13, here's what he says, Here's the end of the matter. All has been heard. I've experienced everything. I've seen everything. Here's my conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And we're going to see in Ecclesiastes this call to keep God in his rightful place in our hearts and minds. 
Well, there's a, there's a flow of Ecclesiastes, it's, but it's not a, a nice, neat, sequential, A, B, C, D type of flow. But I wanted to give you the, the main thoughts. It's more of a meandering book, kind of goes like this. But here are the thoughts, and I think I even threw a couple blanks in there to keep your attention. Life under the sun is ultimately pointless. That's where he starts, right? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then everything under the sun fails to ultimately satisfy the deepest desires of the human soul. This is the quest he's on to fill that emptiness, that void. God must be acknowledged for there to be any point to our under the sun existence. So a a glimmer of truth here. Life under the sun is hard. How many would agree with that? And its realities can be brutal, even as we talked about one of those earlier in our time together today. Chapter 5, God should be rightly acknowledged and revered for who He is. Injustice and poverty are realities in this life, but wealth brings its own set of problems. Of course, some of you are saying, well, give me those problems then, you know, I'll, I'll tackle those. <laughs> And then this thought, to obtain wisdom is better than being a fool, but, being, but merely human wisdom has its limits. Living in submission to authority is wise, but incomprehensible injustices will still occur in this world. That's true. And then this thought he'll come back to again and again. All will experience death, whether wise or foolish. Everybody's going to die. He's going to say that again and again, reminding us of the, the fragileness of life and the brevity of it. But there is joy, he contends, in this life for one who acknowledges God. And then this thought, wisdom is better than folly, but foolishness can be found everywhere. And he's going to explore different arenas of life where he sees folly, private sector, public sector, entertainment world, the world of government. (laughs) He's going to delve into all those arenas and find foolishness there and be disheartened by it. And then there's this thought that comes towards the end of the book. Do what you know to do and leave the outcome to God. That's good counsel, isn't it? Remember your creator while you are young, before old age overtakes you and it's too late to live for him. And we'll see in the latter chapters, there's this description of growing old that's just funny. (laughs) It's just humorous. And uh, we'll enjoy that when we get there. Well, maybe some of us will enjoy it. I don't know. And then finally, fear God, keep his commandments, and remember that a final judgment is coming. And it's ironic, I think, to note that for this man, for King Solomon, the preacher here, the prospect of a coming final judgment is not just a fearful thing, but also a very satisfying thing. Say, what? Because one aspect of his search for the good life is is his search for a satisfying worldview, a coherent worldview in which the many injustices that he observes in this life under the sun will get rectified, will get dealt with one day. And for him, theism, the belief in a God, provides that for him because it teaches there is a righteous God and one day he's going to make crooked things straight He's going to right all wrongs. He's going to judge wickedness and evil in this world. And that is a comforting and satisfying thought to the preacher. Well, if we step back and try to draw just a couple of insights from this flyover of Ecclesiastes, I would suggest a couple of things. First, 
if a man who had everything investigated everything under the sun and found nothing of lasting value, then the one thing he needed most must have been above the sun, namely relationship with God. And then this, in this era that we live in, this new covenant era, we live on this side of the cross, right? Jesus, the Son, S-O-N, offers his redeemed followers an abundant life. Not pointless, not empty, not futile, not meaningless. Abundant life full of purpose and joy. Freedom from a pointless existence. It wasn't it Jesus himself who said the thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. One translation says, and have it to the fullest. That's what our Lord came to offer us, to offer you, to offer me. And so there's this counterbalance in this new covenant era to the vanity and the futility of Ecclesiastes. Listen, emptiness, hopelessness, and despair does not have to be your story or mine. We can reject the secular worldview, right? We can reject the minus God perspective that leads to that very dark place, and instead we can embrace a worldview in which God is at the center of everything, where we come to realize and accept and rejoice in the fact that we breathe His air, we eat His food, we walk on His earth, where our hearts become thrilled with the thought that each and every one of us matters to God. Did you know that you matter to God? That he knows your name. It says our names are inscribed on the palms of his hands. It says he knows the numbers of hairs on our head, which is reducing, you know, over time <laughs> for some of us. But I mean, he knows the intimate details about us and things we don't even know about ourselves. This is our God. That he actually loves us and wants us and has a plan for us to discover that we each have a purpose for being here, that life and existence is not futile and not pointless and not empty and vain. See, we live on this side of the cross. God wants you for himself, and he did everything necessary to break down the wall between you and him and make a way for you to know him and to dwell with him forever. And this might be a good point to pause and just reflect for a few moments on the gospel, the good news. Because the gospel gives us hope that this is true. It tells us that God is one deity who manifests himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That he is a triune God, a triunity tells us that the Father sent the Son, Jesus, to this earth 2,000 years ago, and because of who he was, Jesus was able to live that life of love that God calls all of us to live, but that none of us has. Jesus lived it perfectly, and then he died. He was executed, actually, like a common criminal. But in that moment... When the ruling authorities thought they were finally rid of that nuisance and when Satan was wringing his hands in glee in apparent victory, God was turning the tables for your sake because you matter to him. 
In that moment, he took all of your sins and all of my sins, which are many. He took all of our pride, all of our selfish anger, all of our lust, all of our greed, all of our covetousness, all of our addictions. He took all of our looking for love in all the wrong places. He took all of our racism and prejudice and self-righteousness and feeling superior to other people. All of our worship of false gods. The one true God was taking all of our sins and placing them on his own son in that moment when he was hanging there on the cross. There on that hill, he punished Jesus in your place and in my place. And Jesus didn't resist, did he? He was for this. Jesus, our substitute, willingly took upon himself all of our sin, all of our shame. You should praise God for that. I do. One man said it this way. Listen, God poured out all of his wrath on his son so that he could pour out all of his mercy on us. That's good news. You know, back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had substituted themselves for God, hadn't they? But at the cross, God was substituting himself for us, taking our place. And after that substitution in which Jesus took on himself the punishment that we deserve, he was buried in a rich man's tomb, as you know. And then three days later, the other two members of the Holy Trinity, God the Father and the Holy Spirit, visited that tomb and infused life into Jesus' dead corpse and raised him bodily from the dead that very first Easter Sunday. And Jesus was alive again. People saw him walking around. He ate fish sandwiches. He cooked breakfast for people. He talked with them. He taught them. He hung out with them. It really happened. And then a few weeks later, Jesus ascended back up into heaven where he is now, busily preparing a place for his people to dwell with him forever. It's almost too good to be true, but it is true. It's the good news. And now, during this age, he is calling on all people everywhere to turn away from their futile attempts to satisfy their souls and fill that void with other things, which, by the way, is idolatry. He calls people to turn to him alone. Believe that his sacrifice on the cross was enough for God to cover all of your sins. He calls us to choose to trust in him alone, really to entrust our whole lives to him. And that's called faith. Faith. Faith's the only way anyone will ever be made right with a holy God. It can't be by works. We could never be good enough. It's got to be by faith. And those who exercise saving faith in Jesus end up in heaven after they die. But not only that, they experience Jesus' abundant life during their remaining days here on the earth. That's what he promised. I know many of you have made this choice. You've put your faith in Jesus' sacrifice to save you. Because of that, you're forgiven. You have eternal life. Hopefully you're tasting at least least a taste of that abundant life that Jesus promised. But maybe you're here today and you've never yet done that. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus wants you. He wants you for himself. He wants to forgive you. He wants to save you. He wants to change you. He wants to give you his abundant life. No matter how far away from God you've been, no matter what kind of sinning you've done in your life or what kind of sins have been done to you, 
No matter how ashamed you are of what has happened, no matter how empty you felt or how much your life was a mess and falling apart. I think I've shared this story with you before, but I don't know that I've shared the detail that I'm going to give you today. It's about my tennis buddy in high school just a few years ago. His name was Charles, and he was a sharp kid. I mean, really sharp. He was the valedictorian of our class. He dated a very gorgeous and very smart girl. Charles grew up in a wealthy family. He lived in a beautiful home on the other side of town from where we lived. He had a, grew up with a tennis court in his backyard. Became a prolific player, and in high school, Charles played number one singles for our team, and he pretty much destroyed, annihilated everybody he played. As far as I could tell, he had it made. Looked to have a storybook life and a bright future. We kind of lost track of each other as we both went off to different colleges. But about 10 years ago, I just got the itch to reach out on the internet and see if I could see if I could find him. And I came across an email address that had his name attached to it. And so I decided to give it a shot. A couple days later, I got an email in return. And here's what it said. Hey, Steve, good to hear from you. Can you believe it's been 30 years since we graduated from high school? And now it's been 40. (laughs) He said, uh, when I went to UC Davis after Rigetti, that was our high school, I was set on trying to repeat my successes of high school. But the Lord truly had other ideas. He orchestrated several coinciding failures to get my attention. I spent the whole year at Davis studying, studying and ended up getting 10 units of C- minus in my major, which at the time was chemistry. Now, this was the valedictorian of our class. This is a bright dude, C-. minus. At the same time, because I was studying all the time just to keep my head above water, I ended up being last on the varsity tennis team. This is one of the top high school players in the state of California. He said, if I'd played varsity that year, that would have meant a lot of travel and no actual playing of tennis, so instead I played JV. Can you believe it? And as a JV player, I lost every match I played that year. It truly crushed me. When I went home that summer and talked with my friends, who also were home from college, all of them had lots of friends, and they all had boyfriends and girlfriends. That was one thing I didn't have, friends at college, because all I'd seen was the inside of my books in school. All I'd done was study. As an atheist at that point in my life, I began to rethink my life and the vanity of success. Isn't that interesting? Unfortunately, I was deceived into thinking that I would find meaning in a relationship. So when I went back as a sophomore, I had a new plan to find a girl. That was yet another disaster. Thank God that he spared me from making some really big mistakes in that. At the same time, there were these two born-again roommates of mine who were in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and they kept witnessing to me and praying for me to get saved. They invited me ten times to go with them to a Christian concert, and I finally went. This man there got up and shared his music and his testimony. At that time, I said, I'd like to know more about God, yet deep in my heart, I truly was not ready to confess and receive Jesus as Lord of my life. But the two guys kept meeting with me and tried to disciple me. Of course, the girls kept being a distraction to God's greater plan, and quickly I 
left off the Bible studies. At that time, reading the Bible was like reading Italian. I could see the words, but I couldn't understand their meaning. Well, the fourth girlfriend (laughs) was this German girl whom I really did fall in love with and whom I really did believe I wanted to marry. But God, he's looking back now, but God orchestrated it to fail in a most dramatic way. Suddenly, the week of finals, right before summer, she came to me and told me that she never really loved me and didn't want to talk to me ever again. So I finished my tests, gathered my things, and went back home set on committing suicide. But the two fellows had given me a Bible, and before I could kill myself, I felt I owed it to God to give him one more chance to tell me why I should go on living when my life felt so empty and worthless. I said, God, if you're up there and you're real, please speak to me, because you're the last person who's going to get a chance to do that. Well, Steve, he did speak. He told me he had a plan for my life, but he couldn't tell me yet what it was. That's okay, because that was all I needed to hear, and I received Jesus as my Savior and Lord right there in my bedroom. I forsook all of my future plans and started looking for a church to fellowship with for the rest of the summer. The rest of the story is that Charles went back to school that fall and found a great gospel-centered church to link up with there, and eventually he got trained to serve as a Christian missionary in Kenya, along with his wife and seven children. And he's been serving the Lord in Kenya, running a Christian orphanage and a Bible college and a church for the last 20 years. He loves Jesus. He's living the abundant life that Jesus promised. It's not without its struggles, but it is with the Lord. Thinking back... I was thinking back on our high school days, Charles would have been near the top of my least likely to ever get saved list. I mean, he had it all going on without God in his life, or so it seemed. Listen, if God could save my atheist buddy Charles from his sins, from a life of desperation and despair, if God could turn his life around and give him purpose and meaning for his existence on this earth, and he can do that for anybody, certainly anyone in this room. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Yeah, but only for the person who's chasing the wind. Only for the one who's living under the sun apart from God. But for those who put their full faith in Jesus Christ and choose to live in the sun, above the sun... A much different kind of life awaits. And I wonder if you have never in your life bowed your knee to Jesus, if you have never yet accepted him as your Savior and your Lord, might he be calling you to do so today? And if he is, how will you respond? How will you respond? Would you bow your heads with me, please? Because I want to pray for those of you whom God is speaking to right now. And maybe you're one who would say, you know what, Steve, I sense God calling me to put my full faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins, to be saved from God's judgment, to be delivered from my empty, pointless life. Maybe you'd say, Steve, pray for me that I'll say yes to Jesus right now. And I do want to do that. And if that's you today, would you just lift your hand all around the room so I can 
see you and include you in my prayer. Thank you. Anybody else? Yeah, thank you. I see that in the back. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the good news of the gospel. I mean, our lives would be empty and despairing if we didn't have hope through Christ. And Lord, as good as it gets in this life sometimes, we know that there's coming a life that's going to be even so much better for those who know you. Lord, for these who raise their hands, I do pray that you would give them the courage and faith to say yes to Jesus right now. And maybe you want to do that just there in your seat, just a simple prayer whispered to Jesus. Yes, yes, Jesus, yes. Yes, I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you came and lived the perfect life. I believe you died for my sins. And I believe you were raised from the dead and that you're alive right now. You're listening to my voice. Yes, take my life. I'm yours. I, by faith, I give you my life. Lord, I pray for each person who is whispering that prayer to you right now. I pray you'd save them. Forgive them, bring them into your family. Fill their empty hearts, fill that void with yourself and set them on a new course towards joy. We thank you, Lord. We bless your name. In Christ's name, amen.